are back on another edition of The Fadeaway with Dion Thomas and Eric Schmidt. And hey, first things first, a little bit of housekeeping. Are you following us on social media? If not, grab a pen. We'll wait. Hurry up. Please give us a like on Facebook <laughs> at The Fadeaway with Dion Thomas and Eric Schmidt or on Twitter at The Fadeaway Shy, C-H-I. And yes, we are even on Instagram at the same one, The Fadeaway Shy. Am I missing any, Dion? Uh, no, you are not. Do we need to Snapchat anything else? You you have the two teen daughters. You have more intel than I do. I yeah, but they don't right want now. to hear me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they're they're telling you to go to like MySpace and uh, the Facebook. old ones. Facebook. Well, you know, now yeah, they say Facebook old. is old now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, okay. So go do that. All right. We're not going to wait any longer. You can hit pause. Uh, also, we're thankful to partner on these podcasts with our guy, Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking. If you're someone who's in the sports world or you aspire to work in it, look for Painless Networking on social media or even better, check out his new website, www.painless.network and get connected. All right. Housekeeping's out of the way. There is a chill in the Chicago air, Dion, and the days are getting shorter. The leaves are falling. What does that mean for us? That means basketball season, baby. Yes, soup season <laughs> back. And it's time to turn our attention to that great game. Basketball has truly become a global game with players of all nationalities playing everywhere to play. And the explosion of information and how we access it has created fans in every corner of the world. And a neat story that hasn't been told until now is the migration of sorts of black Americans to Israel to play professional basketball. Dion, you being one of those guys back in the day. It's a story near and dear to Dion's heart. And today we're joined by David A. Goldstein, author of Alley-Oop, to Aliyah, African-American hoopsters in the Holy Land. David is a journalist and sports executive based in Toronto, Canada. He is of half Israeli descent and currently serves as the chief operating officer of U Sports, which, if you're not familiar, is the Canadian equivalent of the NCAA. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. This is a really cool topic. I want to find out how you got the idea to write about this. Uh, so it came up actually, uh, as you mentioned, half Israeli descent. So I would go to Israel uh, all the time to visit family. And uh, on a visit more than 10 years ago, was uh, hanging out with my grandparents and some of their friends. And I mentioned being from Toronto and these 80-something-year-old Eastern European women just started going nuts about Anthony Parker <laughs> right here in Naperville. And I just thought, that's the most interesting thing. You know, why are you so passionate about Anthony Parker? Why do you know so much about him? And they were talking about him as a person more than just as a player. And I just thought that passion was interesting and that connection was interesting. And, and that's really what got me started looking into the whole thing. Well, I have to agree with your grandmother and her 80-year-old <laughs> friends. Anthony Parker and I played together, of course, during the 2003, 2003, 2004, 2004, 2005 um, era for Maccabi Tel Aviv. And the fact that they were talking about him and excited about him, I have to say I second that because Anthony Parker is a great guy. And you're right. He's from right here in Naperville, where I live now. Where we're recording now. Oh, wait, that just brings things full circle <laughs> today, right. doesn't it? There it is. <laughs> and I'll just add, you know, I'll throw in some Hebrew and some Yiddish. I mean, they were talking about him. They called him a Ziskite, a mensch, motek, mm. these, these Hebrew and Yiddish terms for sweetie and, and, a, and a great person. And that really was what struck. They really knew him as a person, and, and that was fascinating to me. So you got the concept. You, you were like, boy, there's something here. How did it start to percolate? And how did you say, hmm, there's a book here and I'm going to be the one to write it? It was uh, pretty much that night, the next morning, you know, I was flying back to Toronto and I had 12 hours on a plane and, and I thought, this is really interesting. 
I've got to find out more. And I just Googled basketball in Israel, African-American basketball players in Israel, printed up everything I could. And by the time I landed in Toronto, I'd figured out things I had no idea about. I didn't know any players had gone there and actually stayed. I mean, I knew they had a league and I knew they had good players. But the idea that some players would come back every year and some players would actually make their life there, that's when I started realizing this is a lot more than just basketball. There's something really deep and interesting and, and really positive here. And that's when I thought, you know, I, I think we have a potential book here. And, um, you know, I think I'd like to be the one to do it. Yeah, because we mentioned, and I love the angle you took on this, where you're talking about the African-American players that have gone to say, because there have always been players that have gone over there. I mean, we, we all know Tal Brody, who is the, you know, an Illini great as well as an Israeli great who has really, who really put the, the country on the map, yeah. you know, um, as far as basketball. But he's not from um, uh, Israel originally. Right. You know, he's an American that has mm-hmm. gone over there and stayed. So what made this be the the area? I mean, outside of talking about Anthony Parker, I, I sure. get that. And the 12 hours on the plane, as your mind gets a chance to work as you're in that tube flying over the water. But what, what was it that say, okay, I'm going to look at it from this angle and not from this angle? I think there were a few things. One is, you know, if you look at different leagues in Europe, um, there's a lot of African-American players at, at playing at a high level everywhere. Um, but one of the things that I thought was interesting was in Israel, just statistically, the proportion of their foreign players that are African-American was much higher. Uh, it was something like 80 plus percent. In, in I looked at Italy and I looked at Greece and they were in the 60s. So I thought there was something there. And I, I've always been interested in the connection between African-Americans and Jews. Uh, and I thought these are two communities that, you know, they're not exactly the same by any means, but they share some some history of persecution. Uh, they've shared some experiences together, uh, you know, Dr. King marching with rabbis mm-hmm. um, and, and things like that, that always interested me well outside the basketball court. And I thought this was an example of, you know, maybe there's an element to this basketball story that is about that shared persecution and about that uh, community bonding. Uh, and, and that's really why I took that the African-American player in Israel angle is I thought that might be something unique and special to Israel that you wouldn't see anywhere else in the world. What did you find out when you dug into that? You know, I found a lot of the players that, that played there, and Dion can speak to it, uh, you know, really talked about uh, being feeling beloved, feeling accepted, not feeling racism that uh, they did feel in other places in the world. And, and in some cases, players even saying they felt less racism than they did at home. Uh, and, and some players specifically said, you know, it would feel strange if a Jewish person discriminated discriminated against me as an African-American when they've been through everything they've been through. And so it's not to say that it's perfect and it's not to say that it doesn't exist uh, at all in Israel. And I talk about some of the negatives and some of the challenges, but um, generally speaking, it was a unanimous theme with players that I spoke to that they didn't feel discriminated against and they didn't feel racism and they thought that might have something to do with it. And I would agree with that. And I got to touch on this. So funny you say that because my wife and I were married. My wife, who's Israeli, Daphna, uh, we were married before I'd even had an opportunity to meet her family. So that's a strange thing within itself. So when I took my first job in Israel with Maccabi Rishon, you know, she called her parents and says, oh, and her family said, OK, well, you need to go to the airport and pick up my husband. So, of course, you know, I'm sitting in the background looking at her like, wow, you really <laughs> want to do this. But when I got there, the love that I had gotten from her family, you would have think we had been married already 10 years. And that was the exact same thing that I observed as I walked around the street, 
as I would leave my apartment before she came over to just talking to people in the hallways on the elevator. You did. I did not feel a sense of you don't belong here. Why are you here? Or, or any of those type of questions, which, as you said, someone may have said that, well, I feel this at home here in the U.S., but I don't feel it there. That has happened to me. I felt it here in the U.S. and did not feel it there. And, and that's definitely one of the things that made my time um, as, as enjoyable as possible. I mean, so close to the fact that we almost stayed. I mean, we almost didn't come home. And even this last summer when we went over and people were saying, well, you know, would you think about coaching a team over here or, or getting it? We honestly considered it because of the love that we have, you know, for, for Israel. David, you, there are a lot of players that have chosen to stay there. Um, what have they told you were the reasons for it or, you know, some of the examples that you have in the book? You know, a lot of players, it's really that love that, that Dion mentioned. It's that acceptance. And, and it's an interesting two-way thing because, you know, if you know Israel and you haven't been, you've heard about it in the context of violence, in the context of conflict. Uh, it's a heavily criticized country. It's scrutinized. Uh, and so for an African-American basketball player with the choice of any country in the world to go play, in that context where that's how you know Israel, for them to choose to go there... Uh, and then in some cases choose to go back year after year, and then in, in the ultimate case choose to stay, it's the ultimate compliment to Israelis. And so they're constantly being viewed in this negative lens. And so when a player makes that decision to come back a couple of years, um, they're embraced in a way that they aren't anywhere else, or, or they've expressed to me that they aren't anywhere else. And uh, and then ultimately it just becomes, this, it's a subtle transition from uh, this is where I play to this is where I live. Uh, and, and for a lot of players, it just kind of happens. They're, they're playing, and, and if you're at a high level, you're able to play well into your 40s sometimes, and so subtly you're going from now you're playing in the second division and now you've got a side job, and now your side job becomes your main job, and you just suddenly you're Israeli. Um, and so there, there's lots of things about getting citizenship and all of that, but um, ultimately it's just that's where they felt comfortable and, and they end up sticking around. David, you kind of alluded to, I guess, Americans' perception of the Middle Eastern violence. Dion, what did you know about the country before you went there, and what drew you there? Well, uh, again, Daphne and I were married before I went there, so I'd always had a, a curiosity of, of about what the, co- the country was like. So we're laying in our bed, and I'll give you a little story of how this happened. We're laying in, our, in the bed in Spain, uh, which is where I met my wife. I didn't meet her in Israel. We met in Spain. <clears throat> so one day we're one morning we're in the bed and I get a phone call about five o'clock in the morning, and it's David Blatt on the other line, and David says, "Well, Dion, do you know who this is?" I'm like, "No," and, you know, and he tells me who it is. Of course, I know who he was following uh, basketball throughout the Euro League and and his time when he was at um, Princeton. So you you I'm like, "Yeah, I know who this is." You know what's going on? He says, "Dion, how would you like to come win championships, or would you like to stay in Spain and win and make a lot of money?" You know, that's a strange question you're getting at four o'clock, four or five o'clock in the morning. But, you know, of course, I, I, I wanted to win championships as any athlete wants to win championships, but you also want to make a good living. And that's one of the things about playing for Maccabi Tel Aviv. But for some of the other countries there, you're able to do both. And so you hear the things to go back to your, your original question. You hear things about the violence and, and the things you see on the news. And it's not just, it's more so here than in other places in the world. But if something happens, 
here, it's on the TV for two months. If something happens in Europe, it's on the TV for two weeks. Something happens in Israel, it's on TV for a day and then it's done. Because they don't sit there and, and harp on the, the negative. So when dissect it over and over and over. Exactly, exactly. So what I knew about Israel is, yes, there's this conflict. Yes, there's this possibility of danger and this and that. But what I learned when I got there, that the possibilities of something like that happening were slim to none. And when I got there and we first landed and you, you honestly have an opportunity to sit down and meet people and talk to them, you see this zest of life for life. And, and for living, I shouldn't say for life, this zest for living and how much they enjoy themselves day in and day out, which is different than a lot of places in the world. And it's definitely different than here. I mean, here we, you know, we work to live. We just want to work, 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 gain, 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 you know, from a financial standpoint or whatever. It's not that way there. I mean, and it's so much for me, you know, maybe I should speak for, for me and my family. It was so much more relaxing and easier way to live. It was so community and family oriented. Everyone felt close to one another. And, you know, not to say again that there's not things that go on, but if something does happen immediately, people are drawn together, they connect, they prevent a lot of things from happening. And, you know, you're talking about safety and these other things. When we're there, I feel safer there than I do here which should be a crazy thing, especially growing up the way I grew up. I know how to handle myself, but I feel safer there than I do here. When my children are here, my wife and I take them just about every place that they're going. When we're there, they say, okay, well, we're going here. We're like, okay, see you later. You know, here, I do not allow Daphne to stop at a gas station or at a cash machine at night. There, I don't I feel no angst at all about her being out by herself or, or, or anything because that's just not something that happens. You know, you, you hear the things that happen to children here in the United States far too often. You don't hear those things there. You know, so it's, it's a totally different vibe, a totally different way of life, a totally different thought process that, to be honest, we need to adopt a lot of that here. Hmm. <laughs> and I think we would be a lot better. Interesting. Very, very, that would be very nice. That's why we got to get you, that's why we gotta to get you on the plane, man. Got to get I would, love to, family over I would here. love to go. Uh, so, David, you talked about kind of how the idea came to you and started to percolate and you started to do some research. How did you actually get started on the book? You well, know, I, I was a bit lucky that. Uh, when I had the idea, it really came because Anthony Parker was was playing on the Raptors. Anthony Parker was there. Maceo Baston was there uh, as well at the same mm-hmm. time. So we had two former Maccabi Tel Aviv players in my backyard. Uh, and so really those were the first kind of conversations. Uh, and they validated a lot of the things I was kind of curious about. And then I just started cold calling. And I started reaching out to agents and asking if I could interview their players. I'd Facebook message players. Uh, I was shameless in just saying, you don't know me, uh, I'm not a well-known writer, uh, and I'm ge- I have a lot of questions about your personal life, and, and I know <laughs> this sounds ridiculous, but um, here's, what I'm, here's where I'm coming from, and the players were incredible. I mean, Dion, you know, I, I talked to Dion and his wife and his daughters about, you know, we, we probably talked five minutes of basketball and an hour mm-hmm. of race, religion, family, um, you know, raising children. 
things that have nothing to do with the game. And and Dion was a great example of it, but tons of players were, were open and I was blown away by it. Uh, but that's really how it started. The book is very, very much, it's, it's the player's perspective. Um, there was research to, to lead into questions and to make sure I was looking at the right things, but uh, it was their words, it's their stories, it's their anecdotes. Uh, and if it wasn't primarily important to the players that I spoke to, it didn't go in the book. Uh, and so it, it, it was just reaching out and, and then players would say, oh, have you talked to Stan, you know, I, I talked to Jatim Young because he went to Northwestern with me and I knew he played in Israel, so that was an easy call. Mm-hmm. And then he said, oh, have you, talked to, have you talked to Stanley? Stanley Brundy played at DePaul and he's still in Israel now into, you know, late 40s, early 50s. Would never have found him if Jatim hadn't said, you know, you should talk to Stanley. So it, it really was the players, uh, it was their openness and then their willingness to say, talk to my friend, talk to my coach, talk to whoever. Uh, and then that really built up the critical mass that I needed. It gets you the credibility too when you when they start to make the references. How, I, now how did you get to the to an Anthony? Or did you just uh, call the front office? Well, so I I'd done some freelance sports writing over the years, so mm-hmm. I, I had a good relationship with the Raptors media relations team and uh, Jim LeBombard, who's now at the NBA uh, office in New York. Uh, you know, you ask any beat writer, he's he's the best media relations guy you can you can meet. Uh, and he was always great with getting me access and, and getting me passes. And, uh, you know, I was doing other things at the same time. So I was doing some freelance articles and um, and he was kind enough to allow me a little bit of leeway. Uh, and they were happy to to answer questions. So it would be after practice, before games, uh, you know, whatever time I could get with them. And then really the big thing were, were the phone interviews. And that those started going from, you know, five minute pregame uh, interviews to, hour-long phone conversations about life uh, and that's really what built uh, built the project how many players did you find out made the jump and then how many did you eventually talk to for the book uh, as far as players that have stayed it's it's probably more than 10 uh, I would guess close to 20 uh, mm-hmm. I spoke to I think about eight players that still are there uh, and then a lot of players like Dion's a great example who spent so many years there and it remains a part of their life uh, even though he lives here, I th- think did you figure out how many total had, or about how many had had gone there to play in this oh, era? Yeah, uh, absolutely, great question. So yeah. uh, I was blown away by that. That people ask me all the time what I'm surprised by. I was surprised to find out that players stayed, but I was also surprised to find out how many had gone at all. Yeah. Um, and it's not a, a scientific definitive list, but just from the research I've been able to do in 40 years, at least 800. Wow. wow. African-American players, specifically African-American players, have gone and played to some degree, a couple of games or 20 years, um, but more than 800. And if you look at the list, you know, if you're a college basketball fan, if you're a high school basketball fan, whoever you followed, if they didn't become an NBA, you know, 15 year player, there's yeah. a pretty good chance they played in Israel. You look at a final four team, an NCAA championship team, you know, Miles Simon in Arizona, Khalid yeah. El-Amin in UConn. I mean, you can go on and on, and it's, oh, whatever happened to that guy? Well, chances are at some point that guy played in Israel. <laughs> yeah. uh, and some of the high school guys that went straight to the NBA and didn't make it, that's the fallback, right? They, they were able to still make a, a life and, and play professionally, and Israel was a great place for them to play. How many did you talk to then for the book? Uh, I Total. talked to more than 40, uh, more than 40 sources. Uh, and some of, them, interviews. A, some of them a lot of, <laughs> a lot of times over the years. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. Some of the players I spoke to, their, their kids were toddlers when I spoke to them. And now they're playing for the Israeli junior national team uh, or the Israeli <laughs> national team. I mean, the, you know, 
from 12 years old to now Sean Dawson uh, is the son of Joe Dawson, a player I spoke to quite a bit. Sean played for the national team, played a training camp in the NBA, summer league. Mm-hmm. He might make the NBA soon. So it's, it's pretty incredible to to see that growth over the, over the years. Yeah, he mentioned Sean Dawson. Joe and I, his, Joe Dawson, his dad and I played together. My first, that was my first uh, year playing in Israel, Joe Dawson and I were on the team in Maccabi Rishon. And this is one of the other things that I found out. Other countries that I played in, you know, you may have some of the Americans that help you out and some that really want to do just their thing. And that was one of the things, Joe Dawson, as soon as I walked in there, he was like, okay, this is what you need to do. This is how this country is. And he kind of gave me a rundown on, on what to do, saying he was married to Iris, who happened to be one of my wife's best friends. <laughs> Show you how small this world is. When they were younger, uh, they were they worked together, they modeled together, they did a lot of they traveled here to the states together, and I told my wife, I was like, "Do you know all the, you did all this stuff? You didn't tell me." She was like, "Dion, I live life because a lot. What happens a lot of time, Eric, and it's a little side note when they when the kids graduate and they go and they before they go to the army, they take a trip, and, and that was kind of their trip. They both traveled here to the United States and, and went around here in Chicago, L.A., New York, and then went back to do their their two year service in the in the army. Hmm. So it is great. So yeah, I'm assuming you talked to my buddy Alsi Perry. Talked to Alsi Perry. Alsi Perry was the uh, kind of the first, not the first African American player that ever played there, but the first one that really made a huge impact and changed everything. Uh, and he went over in uh, 76, 77. Maccabi Tel Aviv had never had success internationally. Uh, and he helped lead the team with Tal Brody, yeah. an Illini legend, uh, to the Euro Cup championship. And not just winning the European championship, which would have been big on its own. Mm. They beat Cheska Moscow on the way. Uh, and Moscow was the Russian team. Yes. I mean, they were funded by the military, represented the military at a time when Russia didn't recognize Israel diplomatically. Mm-hmm. So this was a huge political, social, cultural stamp of legitimacy for the country. And it wouldn't have happened without an African-American basketball player from Newark. And, and he ended up converting to Judaism, staying in the country. He was the first one that, that made the leap to stay. Uh, and he really opened the gates for this whole thing. And Aussie's such a great guy. Uh, he was also one of the first people that I spoke to when I got there and it kind of gave me the rundown on on the country and, and how things work. And of course, you know, once I got to Maccabi and he's still a big part of, of what they do in Maccabi and, you know, and you get there and, you, and people's lives, of course, have their ebbs and flows. He was at the top of the heap at one point. He had some issues later on. Maccabi stayed right there. Now he's he's always been beloved. And he will always be uh, beloved by, by what he did. But to see how the country wrapped itself around him through the good and the bad, and the bad. that's amazing. Because, you know, and I hate to be, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing America, but we'll drop people in a heartbeat. And that does not happen there. I mean, that, and that's one of the amazing things about playing there. And I'll give a couple of quick examples. So I'll see, uh, Dion mentioned the highs and lows. He had uh, prison time in the U.S. after playing in Israel and before returning to, to live there. And he told me that he was getting so many letters of support from his Israeli fans years after he finished playing. You know, he's in prison. Years later, they're say- the prison guards were saying, we, we are not set up to handle this amount of correspondence for an inmate. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, that is ultimately when he, when he got out, there was no doubt he was going back to Israel and they accepted him with open arms and Will Bynum, another Chicago guy, uh, you know, had a great couple of seasons at Maccabi, but he had an incident in Israel, yeah. uh, where he was uh, accosted or, or attacked outside of a nightclub, um, and ended up running over, uh, one of the assailants and, you know, was always clear that it was self-defense uh, in his mind, but it was a few days uh, of real challenge and he was in prison. Um, and there was a lot of question, you know, would Maccabi just cut him and sign someone else? Because, you know, you can do that in Europe. It's non-guaranteed deals. The owner of the team represented him in court. He was a litigator. So yeah. did pro bono legal work to help him, supported him through the process. And I've talked to Will, you know, in NBA locker room since. And, and I said, you know, did it build the connection? Were people less uh, bonded with you because now you'd been in a part of the scandal? He said, no, they were more more bonded, more supportive. Um, he he felt more indebted to the country and, and has since. And he, he's always said he'll, he'll be there for Maccabi any time. Um, so it's two pretty incredible examples of, as Dion said, not just when you're, when you're up, but even when you're down. Right. It just sounds so easy to assimilate into that culture, Dion, but I can imagine that's not the case. We're talking about a lot of the positives. What was your biggest challenge to, to go there, and what was different maybe there compared to some of the other countries you played in? It's so funny. There were none. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, perfect. Look, perfect. No, literally, there, there, was, there were none. That's I mean, awesome, though. When you go over there, the first thing you... Okay, let's take Spain, for example. When I first went to Spain, almost most of the people that I would run into spoke little to no English at all. So I had to take it up on myself to learn Spanish in order to be able to communicate. On television, they had Eurosport and CNN. Those were the only channels that were in English. Now take it, this was way back in 1994, but that wasn't that long ago, but there was just no real ability to communicate. You weren't really able to go to the movies. I mean, you had one movie that was showing depending on the time, that had English subtitles in it, so you had to go to the movies. When you would go out just to go to a restaurant or to go and, you know, if you wanted to go to a club, it was, it was extremely difficult because you just could not communicate with anyone. That is the exact opposite of Israel. Hmm. 95, I'm, I'm throwing out a number, I don't know the exact, but I would say a good 95 percent of the people speak English and speak well enough to be able to talk to you and have a conversation. And that hot that, you know, and as you get to the younger generations, everyone speaks English. Mm. I mean, as I spoke, you know, to my, my wife, they start learning English in the first grade. So, of course, when you get there, everyone speaks a, a level of English where you can you can get along, you know, and you don't have to have any issues. All of the movies are in English with Hebrew subtitles. On television, basically everything is in English with Hebrew subtitles. You go to a restaurant, they will have menus in English, they have menus in Hebrew. So you ask what was the difficult part about assembling? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Food, <laughs> I mean, any, anything, any issues? Well, see, I'm a foodie, so mm-hmm. I, I like to try everything. So I'm not, you know, one of these people that may... Oh, Jeez. man, you have no idea. <laughs> I'm not one of these people that shy away from ch- trying things, but... The food is tremendous, you know, and um, we're sitting here with David. David, I tell you, there's two different 
I should say two different types of Jews, Jewish families. You know, you have the Ashkenaz, which are from um, Europe, and then you have the Sephardi, which are mainly from Africa and the, the Middle East and that area. So it's two different types of cooking. So with Daphna's family, who's from Yemen, well, from Aden, as she corrects me often, is a more spicy based, you know, which is a lot like what we the way we cook in the South, you know, with my grandparents and things. So that was what I was used to. I will have to say this. Took me a while to like gefilte fish. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Took me a little bit have a little Do bit of time to like gefilte fish. Why and how that's prepared? Well, I don't know how it's prepared. David could probably I, tell us, but it's I cold. I couldn't even tell you. It's cold and it's not the most aesthetically pleasing of, of the uh, Israeli food, but fair enough. Uh, you know, and, and you ask about challenge. I mean, there's there are differences in the country, right? So yeah. one of the things, and, and Dion had some great examples, you know, in Israel, everything, there's a an intensity kind of day-to-day life, a bit of an aggression and, and whether you call it uh, abrasive or aggressive, but... Uh, there's not as much with the personal space that we would get uh, in North America. Yeah. And uh, a great example Dion told me was uh, he heard his, his wife talking to her. It was either a sister or a good friend. friend Vivi. And they were talking on the phone, and, and she gets off the phone, and, and Dion says, what, what were you yelling about? What, what were you guys fighting about? Yeah. We weren't fighting, right? That's just how she we talk. She said, we weren't fighting. We were just having a conversation. I was like... Oh, okay. But, <laughs> but no, you're right. Though. And I guess there are a couple of things, you know, and I think back on it. I remember the first time walking out, getting ready to go to practice, and I saw someone walking around with an M16. You know, now I grew up in the hood. I saw guns all the time. But to see, but these were soldiers. I don't want to make it sound like this is just anyone. But that was something that could be a little eye-catching to someone because it even was. I'm like, whoa, what are they doing walking around with M16s? But when you're in the military there, you have to keep your weapon with you at all times. You know, just like cops here, you sure. know, they always are carrying their firearms. So that was one thing. But you're right. That, that's is David. It's so funny you bring that up because that was the thing. But when she was talking to Vivi and I knew how good of friends they were. Again, they've been friends since they were about 15, 16 years old. So to hear that over the phone in the beginning of our relationship was strange. But then I I, I, I got to understand and, and David drew this correlation between black people and Israeli. We're just loud. We're just loud people. <laughs> <laughs> so there's another connection. <laughs> and you know when she's just communicating and when she's really angry with you, I'm sure, at this point. Oh, yeah, point. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then no problem. <laughs> yes, you, you, I know very easily. So, David, you mentioned 800 players. Um, let's put this in perspective because I, I don't know that everybody understands the rules for Americans playing in Europe. It's not like you can just throw a full roster of Americans on a team in, in Israel. What, what were the rules? And I know they've changed a little bit uh, probably since you've played, but what were the rules and how many and, and like, if there's some sure. loopholes? Just walk us through that, guys. Yeah, so they, they've changed it over the years. You know, Initially, it was just Israelis playing in the Israeli league, mm-hmm. uh, and Maccabi Tel Aviv would play in Europe, and they were allowed to have one foreign player uh, on their team. Uh, that has changed over the years. There have been times where you were allowed as many as you wanted. There were times you were only allowed one, then you were allowed two. Mm-hmm. Um, so the rules have changed, and the idea is you're trying to balance raising the level of play so that it's entertaining and so that your local players have the best players to play against versus you want to make sure it's still a local league and that an Israeli kid or a Spanish kid or an Italian kid has a chance to make it. Uh, so that's the kind of background behind the, the, re, the rationale for the rules. Uh, Israel's unique because every country in the world has that challenge, that, that yeah. balance they're trying to keep. Israel is the only one that has a rule called the law of return. 
uh, and it's a national law. Uh, Israel was founded right after the Holocaust, and the idea was that every Jew anywhere in the world who wanted to live in Israel should have the right to. And so anyone who's Jewish uh, or anyone who marries someone who's Jewish, if they move to Israel, they're allowed to become a citizen right away. Uh, and it's a very well-intentioned and, and noble law. Uh, it also means that if someone becomes Jewish and moves to Israel and becomes a citizen, they're no longer one of those one or two foreigners that you're allowed to have on your team. They're allowed to play as an Israeli. And so it means that if somehow you got you know, a, a group of great basketball players to become Jewish or to marry uh, Israeli citizens, they could become citizens right away and then you could fill in more Mm -hmm. elite talent from the U.S. So uh, when in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, there were a lot of players that converted uh, to Judaism. Uh, you know, many of them, you know, I spoke to a few of them uh, and and their, the veracity of the, the conversion is le completely legitimate and, and it's a big part of their life. Uh, and then there are others who, you know, there have been questions about was it legitimate, was it authentic, mm -hmm. um, you know, was it uh, well-intentioned. Um, but ultimately, that's what kind of led it, this phenomenon from a handful of players, one on, you know, one or two per team to a bigger number was they had this bit of a loophole. Uh, and then ultimately, they, they said, you know, you need to live in the country three years before you can play as an Israeli. And they, they changed it. But uh, it is one of the unique elements to just Israel that you don't have anywhere else. You didn't get that loophole. Um, but you still hold dual citizenship. How did you go down that path? I, I do hold dual citizenship. Um, and, and I went down that path and it worked because I played for Maccabi Tel Aviv. Because I didn't live in Spain for three years. I, I mean, in Israel for three years. We were in Spain. But my wife and I, before I even got, went to Israel, we had already been married four years, mm -hmm. four or five years. So it kind of got grandfathered in there and then you're playing for the most powerful team in the country which kind of you know made that transition a little bit easier as well because they knew my marriage wasn't a hoax because it, to be honest I had no intentions of going and playing in Israel we were completely happy in Spain you know my daughter was just born in Spain so we were really setting up our life there so that kind of made the transition for me uh, a little bit easier. It was actually a little bit of controversy when I when I got mine because there was another player that had been living there. Uh, he had been married. He had actually converted over, you know, converted to Judaism, but yet they wouldn't allow him to have um, his citizenship. So when I got my citizenship, it actually made it a little bit easier for him to get his. It was, you know, they, there were some articles in the newspaper and different things of that sort, but. His marriage was legit, and, and as David said, most of the marriages are legit. You know, I mean, they're marrying, you know, these Israeli women. Now, first of all, I got to say this, and I tell people all the time, per capita, the most beautiful women in the world. So it makes it really easy <laughs> to really go over there and, and fall in love. But no, but those guys, including myself, all of these marriages, most of them were, were legit. And I love that country. And, and as David mentioned, a lot of the guys that stayed there and that have left and come back love that country. I mean, and I'm sure if he spoke to Anthony Parker today and you talk, he would tell you the exact same thing. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing place to live. It's an amazing place to play. And if you can assimilate yourself, well, I, I shouldn't even say assimilate because it's not going to be difficult. It's not like you're going to Kazakhstan and you're trying to assimilate into the society there. When you got into this, what were some of the things you were most curious about when you started to talk to these players and, and anything that you maybe that you found out that surprised you? 
I was really curious to see, first of all, everything. I mean, I, I just found the whole thing fascinating. I was really curious to see how players dealt with, you know, Dion talked about how safe people feel and how rare incidents of violence were. I was really curious to hear about when there are incidents and when there is, you know, conflict, whether it's a war or a terrorist attack. You know, again, I go back to that concept of choice. Mm-hmm. And Israelis born and raised in Israel, they this is part of their life. They have to deal with this. I was really moved by players telling me stories of why they chose to stay. Um, when their agents would call and say, we can get you a deal somewhere else. We can get you home. We can get you out of there. And player after player saying, you know, I love this country. Even if they're there for one year, I love this country. And, you know, the guy at the convenience store, the, you know, little kid who lives in my building, I'm in this with them and there's a kinship there and I'm going to stay. And there were some great quotes either players told me or players have told Sports Illustrated or other publications over the years about uh, that loyalty. Uh, You know, and I've spoken to Israeli diplomats about this and Israeli government officials who said that's the ultimate compliment and that's why a player who who comes and plays, even if it's for a bit, uh, they're really ambassadors and heroes for what they're willing to do uh, when it's not their fight necessarily and it's not their country, but for that time period, they feel that way. So that was a big one to me. And, and you know, Drew Kennedy, who, who lives here in Chicago now and does uh, NBA scouting, you know, he was a guy who played teens, you know, I think 15 years in Israel, um, you know, and would talk about going to safe rooms and visiting with families just to give them a little bit of a, a pep and, and a, a pick-me-up and just the ability to do that when, again, you're not born there, you're not raised there, that's not your fight. Uh, to me, that's really moving and, and an incredible thing to hear about. And, and there were a lot of examples of it. And you definitely feel that kinship. You feel that, because there, there were some things that took place when, when I was there. I mean, one, I remember my mother called me, it had to be maybe five o'clock in the morning, her time. She called me in a panic. Well, I hear there was a bomb that went off in, in Tel Aviv. And I'm like, what are you talking about? First of all, I didn't real didn't know it. We had just finished practice with Maccabi, so I go to Moni Fanan, who was the general manager of Maccabi at the time, and I'm like, Moni, what's going on? My mother's calling me. She's panicking. So Moni was like, don't worry, baby. I'll take care of it. He goes. He comes back. He told, tell you, call your mother. Tell her, don't worry. They were trying to kill a Russian mob boss. <laughs> <laughs> so I called my mother back, and she was like, Oh, really? But we've been there when there's been some um, disturbances going on, whether it was people, you know, firing rockets across the border in the north or or something like that. But I I have to agree with David. You feel this kinship. You know, I played in Haifa and and a week before I I arrived in Haifa, there was a bomb at the um, one of the local restaurants. The local first of all, the restaurant was right back up and running two weeks later. And I had the ability, along with the team, to go and sit and speak and talk with a lot of the people and the kids. We went to visit the hospitals of some of the kids that were were and that were there, and we made them feel a lot better. We made them feel good. We made them smile, and that in turn makes you feel good about it. So when you speak about the kinship, yes, there's drama everywhere you go in the world. There's a lot less there than people think that there is. But you always have this this bonding that goes on within that country. So when something happens, it does nothing but draw you closer. Yeah, that shared experience. Yeah, certainly. David, what's your if if you can pin your favorite story in the book? Has it's to like be your, mine. 
<laughs> aside from Dion's, I mean, we don't want to put you on the spot. Obviously, that's you know, the- I, I will, I will give a, a, a Dion one uh, because we're here. You know, first of all, the whole, the whole. I had a lunch with Dion and his family in in St. Louis when they were still there. That's one of my favorite memories, and and one of the things that made me laugh was, uh, you know, it was Dion, his wife, his two daughters, uh, and I believe a cousin. But mm-hmm. the daughters didn't know really necessarily what I was doing there. And, and I'm talking to the parents and I've got the tape recorder and, and they don't know that I speak Hebrew. And so they're chatting with each other in Hebrew, asking, who is this guy? What's he doing here? This and that. <laughs> and, uh, and I do speak not fluently, but well enough. And, and eventually I, I, I turned and kind of said something to them in Hebrew and they just went, ghost tale <laughs> and I said you know of course it's all good it's great but you know it was a great lunch and, and it, it made me laugh because one of the things that came up was we talked to, I talked to one of uh, Dion's daughters it was right before their bat mitzvah and I talked to them about I talked to her about her experience and leading up to it and practice and the party and I could have been talking to someone from my hometown someone from went to my high school and I've spoken to other players kids also about that same you know landmark experience in their life and to me, I grew up, I went to Jewish day school, Jewish high school, summer camp, um, you know, a, a very traditional Jewish background. And it was really uh, inspiring to talk to these kids who came from mixed race families, uh, in some cases, mixed religion families. Uh, but it was all the exact same. You know, kids don't like practicing for their bar moments, <laughs> but kids want to plan the party, kids want to plan the trip. Um, but it was really sweet to me to see that commonality. Uh, and so that, that was a big, uh, a big thrill. Um, and then, you know, as far as anecdotes, there's so many Dion, you know, we joked about it before we were taping, broke his leg and, uh, right before the final four and was saying that some fans came, Israeli American fans came from New York yeah. to Tel Aviv just to try to make him feel better and to support him because that's how maniacal the fans are and, and how supportive they are, uh, of their, their players. And so, all of those examples of that kind of reciprocal love affair between a country and, and a group of a group of players, uh, they all were you know were my favorite part. Yeah, that's a. I, I want to ask a real quick segue, Dion, because this is something I was curious about too. With your daughters, I mean, they're truly multicultural. They were born in Spain, or your your oldest was born. The in oldest Spain. was born in Spain, youngest you know, in they, Israel. And they they have been exposed to so much more than the average kid. What what do they relate to the most? What is there a certain um, you know, heritage that they relate to more than others, or do they embrace the fact that they have so much, you know, worldliness almost? You know, and thank God, and and this is a large part uh, to my wife because, of course, I was playing and coaching. They embrace everything really. Um, they love the fact they love their Hebrew heritage, their Israeli heritage. They speak Hebrew. They've been speaking and learning since they were kids. You know, we practice the Jewish faith in our house, so they love all of the holidays. At the beginning, when Daphne and I got married, we were really celebrating two different religions because, oh, the girls were extremely happy about that because they were getting Christmas presents <laughs> and Hanukkah presents. So, you know, they, they were super excited about that. And living here and then, you know, living there and then coming here and being able to experience both uh, cultures has has really made them extremely well rounded. You know, my daughter's birthday was on Monday, and I had and we're in the in the kitchen having our moment because uh, it was her Earth 18th birthday, and I had to tell her with all of the traveling that we've done, you know, and uprooting the family and moving because of you know my job, the young woman that she has become is truly truly amazing. 
Now, I have to take my hat off and give a lot of that credit to Daphna. But what she has become and how she is growing into who she is as a, as a young lady is truly amazing. So it, it, I'd love to see them, you know, on Shabbat, they're saying the prayers and lighting the candles with their mom. And when it's time to, and they laugh at me when it's time to bless the bread, and I try to do it in Hebrew, I, I get laughed at, but because <laughs> my Hebrew is, is not it's, good it's, at all. It's the effort. It's, it's, it's the, the effort. effort that counts, right? It's the effort. But they, to answer that question, they they embrace, they, they're so well-rounded, and they embrace it all, which is which is tremendous. David, did you encounter a lot of families in, oh, your, yeah. in your interviews? And, and were the, you know, obviously you did some interviews there. You did some with players that have moved back to what what were their, their those family dynamics like? You know, very similar. Uh, a lot of focus on just, you know, keep it simple. Be a good person. Uh, you know, even those that uh, had two religions believe in believe in God. Uh, you know, so uh, some of the families were really close. Uh, you know, one of the players I spoke to, I mentioned another. So Fred Campbell is a player that uh, he grew up in Georgia, has played in Israel for 25 years, continues yeah. to play, and is actually playing right now in the third division with his 18-year-old son. Uh, who I interviewed with Fred when he was 12. Wow. Uh, and so they're playing uh, on a team in, in the third division. And, uh, you know, Dion mentioned speaking Hebrew. Fred actually came to Toronto to help me promote the book release. And we were having breakfast yesterday uh, at, our, at his hotel. And there was an Israeli, a young uh, Israeli couple sitting behind us. And they started speaking Hebrew. And halfway, about halfway through our breakfast, Fred says, watch this. And he kind of leans over and starts speaking to them in Hebrew. And I swear they turned around and looked at me like I was a ventriloquist. (laughs) They they could not believe it. And Fred got such a good laugh out of it. He loved doing that. And, uh, you know, so that's just a quick side note. But, you know, the families were great and they were really focused on be a good person. You know, it's not simple necessarily having two religions. It's not simple necessarily having, uh, you know, uh, parents of two different races. Um, But if you're focused on being a good person, it it works out and... and, uh, it was really interesting to talk to Joe Dawson about raising his sons who are now professional players. Um, you know, Willie Sims's daughter is married to Gal Meckel who played in the NBA, um, you know, and, and talking to them about their military service and all, and their commitment to their country. Um, because as, as Dion mentioned, Israelis need to serve. So, uh, what really struck me was that it was just, it was very simple. It was families talking about families and it didn't matter if it was, you know, what I grew up with in, in, in my surroundings, which was very frequently two Caucasian, you know, Jewish parents raising uh, white Jewish kids, didn't matter how different it was from that on a demographic perspective. It was really, really similar across the board in terms of life experience. So the book is Alley-Oop to Aaliyah, African-American Hoopsters in the Holy Land. I want to know, too, how did you how did you write it? What was the process like for you? I kind of take a step away from the the content and and get into the the sure. how, how somebody that has a corporate law background and obviously sports journalism as well. You're dabbled in a lot of things and then says, "All right, I'm going to write a book. How do I get this published and do it?" Uh, well, the the writing was the kind of simplest and most fun part because it was talking to people and it was talking to people about amazing things that fascinated me. So I loved doing the interviews. Uh, and it was amazing because I would have kind of lists of questions, but invariably time after time, everything on that list came up organically because the, the, the player's experience was so consistent that I didn't even need to say half of this stuff. Um, so I loved that part of it. And, and the kind of chapter structure really flowed from that. You know, players were 
pretty consistent on various different themes. Uh, and it made it pretty simple to say, you know, I'm not going to, the book is different. A lot of books have a pretty traditional narrative arc. They follow one player or one team, and then they go off on little tangents. Uh, I didn't do that. I did very thematic. You know, here's, you know, a chapter about religion. How does religion impact basketball in, in Israel in various different ways? How does violence? Um, you know, so I, I was uh, more thematic. Um, but the chapters flowed really easily from what everyone, again, from the player's perspective, what was most important to them, what came up to them. Uh, the challenge really became, once I'd done a manuscript, uh, getting it published. And, and the reason being, this book does not look like any other books. And I, in publishing, it's such a risky business financially for the publishing company that they're looking at things and saying, show me five books just like that that have done well so we know we're going to be able to make our money back and and understandably and when your whole pitch is there's nothing like this this is completely unique no one's ever covered anything like this before it's inspiring and exciting to me it's risky and scary for a literary agent first and then for a publishing company and so it was years of rejection Uh, and i reached out to i was o for 180 on literary agents over a few years, reaching out, just Googling, emailing, uh, either getting no or it's interesting, but, or just no reply. And then I found this fantastic literary agent in New York who just instantly understood what I was doing, instantly understood the broader appeal, um, that it's not narrowing your audience too specifically. It's in fact a human interest story that appeals to everybody, in my opinion. And, And he shared that vision. And so he came aboard. He was fantastic. And then he spent a couple of years trying to get a publisher to share that vision as well. And then, uh, so his name is Sam Fleischman. He found a publishing company called Skyhorse Publishing. And if you look on their website, they actually specifically talk about, they pride themselves on, and I think the quote was, a maverick and eclectic group of titles. And they love <laughs> finding books that no one else can figure out where it fits and making it succeed. Uh, so I, I'm grateful that it took as long as it did. I'm thankful I didn't find the, the first agent and the first publisher because they may not have shared the vision the way that I did. And I found two perfect, uh, a perfect agent, a perfect publisher, and it ultimately took 10 plus years. And I'm happy for every one of those because, again, I got to get to know the players better, get to see their kids grow up and ultimately find perfect teammates for, uh, for the process. We, we alluded to the time a few times, but you, you just said it, David, 10 years to do the years. process. Yeah. Um, so you did a manuscript before going out and finding it, and that's kind of for those in the publisher who aren't familiar. Usually there's a chapter or two that somebody will do, then they'll pitch it, and they'll try to try to get it going from there. You did all the work up front. What were you going to do if you continued to get no answers? Uh, there were definitely some spotty moments where I thought, okay, this, this may not go. And I, I always knew in the back of my mind, self-publishing is a great service that, that's offered to authors mm-hmm. where... You pay a small fee, and, and there are companies that will just produce your book, um, and they don't, you know, they'll do certain services, but it's it's different. Uh, and so I always had that in the back of my mind that ultimately I was committed to telling this story, and so it was going to happen. Uh, it was going to exist, uh, but I wanted to make I wanted to do it the best uh, service that I could, and I knew that that was with a traditional publisher. Uh, and so ultimately I was just going to keep going until I, you know, I don't know when that point would have been where I said enough's enough. Uh, obviously over 180 wasn't <laughs> quite there. Uh, maybe over 280 would have done it. 
but I, I, you know, I, I knew the story was going to get out. I wanted to do it the traditional way, and, and ultimately it paid off. Persistence is is a key oh, there. How, okay. how did you go through the process? So you would did you did you travel for a lot of interviews? Did you do a lot uh, on the phone? And then how did you start to kind of transcribe and really sit down and start to put things on on the paper? So I did a combination. I I mentioned you know my mom's Israeli. Uh, my mom's whole side of the family is there. So part of my life has always been going to Israel pretty frequently, once a year, once every two years. Um, and once I had the idea for the book, those visits just changed from visiting family to visiting family and uh, and I'd kind of carve out a, a Wednesday afternoon where it's great that the family's doing something but I'm going to go have lunch with Willie Sims who's in Caesarea in Israel or go have coffee with Fred Campbell or whoever else um, and I just made it a part of every one of those trips to make sure I because it's always better to meet people in person sure. um, and then besides that it was a lot of phone interviews and it was you know, we have a seven-hour time difference, so it was a lot of early mornings uh, on my end, calling people in Israel, making it work. Um, but they were great on the phone too, and so it was just years of that. Uh, and then, you know, I'd take, uh, as you mentioned, I was a corporate lawyer for almost ten years, uh, almost exactly the overlap with the process. Um, and I would do this was kind of my reward at the end of a long day or at the end of a long week. Uh, this was the thing I, I most enjoyed doing in the world. And uh, so when I had free time at all uh, at nights or on weekends, I'd go take the laptop to a Starbucks. And, you know, those people that are just sitting at Starbucks having a $2 coffee and sitting there for four hours, mm-hmm. that was me. Uh, and, and I love doing it. And, and it's funny because now I'll, I'll actually get to go to that Starbucks and say, this is what I was doing that whole time. There you go. Question for you. Do you see, and, and, I'll tell you, and I'm, I'm a little... Since I'm in the book, I'm a little biased about this now. No, seriously. But do you see, what do you see the book doing? What do you want? Do you want more from the book? I mean, because I could see this being a 30 for 30. I could see this being a documentary. I could see this even possibly being, you know, I wouldn't say a movie, but a documentary. Is that something that you you hope for the book? I'm obviously an optimist. I went through a 10-year process. I went over 180 <laughs> and thought I'd... I do, I do think it would be a fantastic movie. I, I really do. And to me, I've always... I think it could be a better movie than a book. Mm-hmm. Um, because some of these things, it just... I tried to paint the picture as well as I could, mm-hmm. um, but there's nothing like seeing it. And, you know, seeing players interact, um, seeing the response, you, you know, you go on YouTube, you could go on YouTube for hours and see these amazing little three minute clips of Israeli fans with, with players in different circumstances. Um, and, and I do think that could be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ultimately what I want to do with the book is, uh, you know, I think Dion and, and, and the various other players that I covered, uh, they're, they're doing something extraordinary for Israel, you know, whether it's conscious or not. Again, in this context where Israel is so heavily criticized and so heavily scrutinized, when they choose to go there, that that compliment that they're paying to the country, um, they're doing a tremendous service to it. Uh, and I don't throw the term ambassador or hero around lightly, but I, I really mean it. I grew up with, you know, in Israel, Israeli heroes were military, they were political, or they were religious. And I think this is another group. And I don't think people know about it. And I think they should. So... Um, I hope that the book will help shine a light on it. My, my goal is to really shine a light on that, that cohort of players and the contribution that they make and the service that they, that they provide. And so I think, uh, you know, a book is the only way that I could do it and the best way that I could do it. But I think a movie would be a fantastic way of spreading it even further. Well, I'm looking forward to helping you with that. I've actually, thank God, I've met a few people um, 
because I think it would be a great story. I think it's a great story for people that don't know about the game. For one, that don't know the game. Like you said, it's a, it's a human story. It's a, it's, a, it's a love story to me because not you know a love story between people, but a love uh, story between spirits. The spirit that, you know, me as an African-American, others have had to deal with here. And then you go over and you enjoy and embrace with the people that have had the same struggles and the same thing. So it's two spirits that really had an opportunity to combine through basketball. I mean, that's one of the beauties of sport. You know, we, we talk about how sport bridges, uh, builds bridges. And, and this is just another example of that. And this one probably more so um, because a lot of people don't know. And, you know, they only know what they see on television. And I know some of my discussions that I've had with people and they ask me, well, you know, how could you go play there? Or or what do you think about this? You know, even the political aspects of it. And I tell them, don't believe what you see on television. You cannot believe everything that you see on the news because it's not true. When we go over there, this is how my family feels. You know, the, the love that we feel when we're there, there is little to no race. I've never had a racist um, um, uh, situation there ever. I've never heard anyone speak negatively of any races over there. You know, and then I have other people working on the college campus, of course, and you having the discussions, well, you know, they're doing X, Y, and Z to the Palestinians. And I'm like, again, don't believe everything you see on television. Because I remember my first, you know, well, I shouldn't say my first, Last summer when we went over, we went to the Dead Sea, and as we're coming back from the Dead Sea, we drove past the West Bank. If you look at the images that they show here of the West Bank, it's all just destroyed, and it's terrible. But as we were driving by, I see these big high-rise condos and and all of this other stuff. Now, it's on the other side of the wall, but we see all of this stuff, and I asked my wife, I'm like, you know, what is this? She was like, oh, that's the West Bank. And I'm like, What? I was like, that looks nothing like I saw on television. She was like, no. You know, and this is someone that has been traveling there. My wife and I have been married 19 years. So I've been going back and forth to Israel for 20 years now. So I I think it has a a broad-based story that will really touch a lot of people that's centered around a few people, but I think it would really open the eyes to a lot of people what's going on um, in Israel and what Israel is actually really about. David, where can we get the book? Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, uh, Powell's, anywhere where you can uh, find a book, you can find this one. And uh, again, I hope people spread the word and, and enjoy it. I can't wait to read it. Well, I enjoy it. I, I'm waiting to read it. I definitely enjoyed this, David. You have no idea how much of a pleasure this is for me to have you in my home, to have you on our podcast. Um, I'm, I'm super stoked about it. And I, I think, again... I think the world of what you have done, because you're going to open the eyes for, for a lot of people. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Thanks, David. The book is on sale now. It's Aliyup to Aliyah, African-American Hoopsters in the Holy Land. And the author is today's guest, David A. Goldstein. We highly recommend picking up a copy, reading some of these stories. And if you bring it to Dion, he will autograph it for you. He might even read the chapter if you you know want it in a classroom or something like that, right? I will. There you go. Thanks for listening. He is Dion Thomas. I'm Eric Schmidt. We will see you on the next run here on The Fadeaway. Swish.